Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, January 12th, 2024. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Data on trade book sales for the closing days of 2023 are coming in, and they provide reason to believe the 2023 holiday season was a merry one for publishers and for booksellers. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think publishers are hoping that a, a decent fourth quarter and a good holiday season will augur well for a good and a stable 2024 in terms of book sales, at least. Although, Publishers will readily acknowledge that there are a lot of factors that are just out of their control, as always, that will likely impact them in 2024. But by the numbers, there is certainly reason for optimism. Uh, according to Circana BookScan, uh, sales were up about 1.7% in the fourth quarter, uh, which by Circana's count put unit sales of print books down by about 2.6% for the year that was 2023. That, of course, over sales from 2022. While a nearly 3% drop in sales may not seem like good news, it is when we're talking about what is effectively uh, a correction year from the record sales of the pandemic. And we should point out that the sales drop was significantly less than what many industry observers had feared this summer when sales were steadily declining and were down about 4.1% after the first nine months of the year. Uh, you can read all about the Circana numbers on the PW site, but I'll just give you some broad strokes here from the data. Uh, in 2023, eight titles sold more than 1 million print copies, five of which came from two authors, Colleen Hoover, who had three titles cracked the million copy mark, and Rebecca Yaros, who had two. Uh, and that strong performance, those strong performances, I should say, by Hoover and Yaros, really helped drive up sales of adult fiction titles. They were up by almost 1% over 2022. And that is an especially solid performance, considering that sales in the category were up almost 9%, 8.5%, I believe, in 2022 over the previous year. But after that, no other sales category posted an increase in 2023. But the declines in most segments were far less than the previous year. In adult nonfiction, which is the largest sales segment, sales for 2023 fell 3.1%. And that is a much slower rate of decline than in 2022, when sales dropped 10.3%. And of course, in 2023, we had a big boost from two best-selling memoirs, Spare by Prince Harry and The Woman and Me by Britney Spears, which together sold more than 2 million copies. Uh, children's books continued to struggle as well. Juvenile sales were down 4.7% for the year. But here's the thing to keep in mind, right? Of course, 2023 was, you know, sales were down, but that drop of 2.6% and the more pronounced decline of 6.5% uh, in the year before that still leaves unit sales up about 10% over the last pre-pandemic year of 2019. So if you assume, say, normal growth in the book business, which is generally about 1.5%, if we're lucky, book sales still leveled up about 4 to 5% from before the pandemic. And the hope is keeping that four to five percent bump is where things are going to settle in uh, once you know the dust sort of dies down here. Uh, the wild card, of course, is it costs, right? Inflation and other issues, are those going to swallow up whatever sales bounce we got from the pandemic? 
we will have to wait and see how this year plays out. 2023 was a very tough year, I think, in terms of layoffs, even if sales came back a little bit. Uh, there were buyouts at lots of places, too. But it really is hope that the uh, long sought after new normal may finally start to settle in in 2024. On the bookselling front, Andrew, good news from retail giant Barnes & Noble, as well as from the competition. Yeah, so we have a series report of reports in PW uh, by region from indie booksellers who all sounded like they had a pretty good holiday season. Uh, you can check out those articles on the PW site. Our excellent bookselling team of Ed Nawaka, Natalie Optebeck, and Claire Kirk heard from a number of indies who reported good traffic in their stores and strong spending. And that, of course, is another key to success in 2024, which is the strengths of bookstore book sales. And as you said, on that score, some very good news from Barnes & Noble, which frankly isn't a phrase we've uttered much over the years of doing this podcast. But things really seem to be turning around for the retail giant, which has, you know, has to be a very encouraging sign for publishers who are hoping to have a good and stable 2024. Barnes & Noble CEO James Daunt reported that the chain had a, and I'll quote him here, very solid holiday season, and that capped another good year of sales for the chain. Daunt said book sales were particularly strong, that opposed to all of the other things you can buy in Barnes & Noble. And he cited many of the titles that we just mentioned, right? Big performers like Spare by Prince Harry and Rebecca Yaros, whose, whose novels Iron Flame and Fourth Wing uh, sold a lot of copies. And of note, an improved supply chain, Don says, helped Barnes & Noble keep track of what was in stock, and that, frankly, aided holiday sales. Don told my former boss, now editor-at-large Jim Milliot, that last year saw Barnes & Noble continue to remake its store footprint as well. Uh, Barnes & Noble opened about 30 new stores in 2023, but it also closed some underperforming outlets and reconfigured others. I think Barnes & Noble ended the year with 609 outlets, and that's about 10 more than it had a year ago. But here's the headline, which I buried. Apologies on that. Daunt said that his goal is to open 50 new Barnes & Noble stores in 2024, a number that would represent the highest number of store openings in 15 years. Daunt said the chain is entering, and again, I'll quote him, a period of significant growth. Uh, again, words that have to be encouraging for publishers hoping to have a good year in 2024. And that in addition to opening new outlets, Barnes & Noble is also investing in its IT and distribution operations, all things that could really help sales in the coming year. Don't sounded a very confident note on the prospects for the year, by the way. He noted that there was a spring makeover last year of its membership program, ended up more than doubling the number of customers enrolled, and that has allowed Barnes & Noble to do much more effective promotions for individual titles. And he expressed confidence that this upcoming 2024 publishing list is going to be able to fill the sort of spare-sized hole uh, that's looming for this year so far. Uh, he said he was particularly excited about books by Sarah J. Moss, uh, including the soon-to-be-released House of Flame and Shadow, which is the newest volume in Moss's best-selling Crescent City series. And I think one other thing to keep an eye on for Barnes & Noble, over the holidays, uh, newly unionized workers at Barnes & Noble's flagship store here in Manhattan staged a protest over the lack of a deal. But Daunt noted that employees at five Barnes & Noble locations have now unionized. He seemed totally unfazed by this and said talks are underway with each uh, store to reach new contracts. And he pointed out that you know employees in indie bookstores are also unionizing. And he sounded very much like he has accepted 
that unions are just the way it's going to work for booksellers going forward. And he sounded okay with that. Uh, he actually noted that the, there needs to be more investment in career structures at Barnes and Noble and that there needs to be more invested in training and development associated with career goals. So uh, he said that's a key priority. Good news there. So here's hoping that fair contracts can be worked out quickly for Barnes and Noble and other booksellers in 2024. And then we get down to the business of selling books. A federal lawsuit over book bans in Escambia County, Florida, filed by Pen America, Penguin Random House, and a group of authors and parents will now move forward. Yeah, after a lengthy hearing on Wednesday in Pensacola, federal judge T. Kent Weatherall denied a motion filed by lawyers for Escambia County, uh, by the school board in Escambia County, I should say, to dismiss the case. Uh, Weatherall held that while school officials may have the power to restrict access to properly challenged books in schools, as they have always had, they cannot just simply pull books they disagree with or find objectionable from schools and school library shelves. The defendants now have 28 days to respond to the court's decision. But coming from the bench uh, for the plaintiffs and for freedom to read advocates, uh, the decision to let the case go forward is being hailed as a significant win. Now, for our listeners who may wonder exactly which lawsuit we're talking about, because there really are so many underway, this lawsuit was filed uh, back in May in the Northern District of Florida by Pen America, Penguin Random House, and a group of authors and parents who allege that administrators and school board members in the Escambia County School District are in violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution. The Fourteenth Amendment, of course, is the Equal Protection Clause. Because the books being singled out for removal in the district are disproportionately books by non-white and or LGBTQ authors or books that often address themes or topics related to race or the LGBTQ community. The suit seeks to have the district's actions declared unconstitutional and to have all of the banned books returned to library shelves, as well as to recover costs and legal fees. Now, notably, this initial complaint is excellent reading. And if you are not familiar with it, you should really take a chance to go back and look it up and read it. You can do so right on the PW site because it lays out how a single language arts teacher at a local high school in the county kicked off what would become this widespread campaign to restrict access to books throughout the school district and resulted in four waves of book removals by the school board with hundreds of books being targeted for removal just on the basis of this one person. But what's notable about the decision that was issued on Wednesday, the decision to let the case proceed, is that it comes after a very winding legal road thus far. Back in August, uh, Weatherall granted a motion by the defendants for a temporary stay on discovery, noting that after a, and I'll quote him here, a preliminary peak, actually a legal term, uh, at the board's motion to dismiss, the judge found numerous reasons why the suit might not actually make it out of the pleading state. And that was a pretty ominous sign for the litigation. But in September, the judge lifted the stay after a more, quote, comprehensive review of the case, determining that he was less convinced that the amended complaint would be dismissed in its entirety. And indeed, he has now allowed the case to go forward. Uh, the decision was not a total victory. While a written order has not yet been released uh, from the bench, Weatherall rejected the plaintiff's claims under the 14th Amendment. Again, that's the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, however, the judge found that the plaintiffs do indeed have standing under the First Amendment. And crucially, he rejected an argument by the plaintiffs that 
has surfaced in other book banning cases, and that's the the idea of the government speech doctrine limiting First Amendment protections, which would effectively give schools the unfettered discretion to decide what books students can access in schools and libraries. That argument is very troublesome because it basically says that the government can put whatever they want in schools, and freedom to read advocates say that schools are not supposed to be mouthpieces for government propaganda. They're supposed to be places of inquiry. So that argument here and in other places is going to be one to watch. So far, it's been shut down wherever it's come up. Meanwhile, lawyers for the school board have also noted that the suit could put the school the district anyway, on a collision course with a recently enacted Florida law, HB 1069, which expressly grants school boards full authority over all of the content and instructional materials and any other materials used in schools and sets out a special magistrate process to ultimately decide any disagreements. So that could conflict with what the judges said here. And indeed, the entire law might be in conflict. So there's Certainly much more to come in Florida, a victory for now, but lots of lawyering still to come in Florida and elsewhere. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Executive Editor, thanks for joining me today with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on CCC's podcast, ChatGPT and other AI tools now conduct systematic review of scientific literature for government officials by searching millions of information sources, and the machines are expected to do much more in years ahead. Early in his own career, Dr. Christopher Tyler in the Department of Science, Technology, Engineering, and Public Policy at University College London was a science advisor in the House of Commons. Looking back from the perspective of 2024, he wishes ChatGPT were there to help with his work. Oh, a thousand times, yes. It would have been fantastic. I can't tell you how long I used to spend doing things like scoping new inquiries for select committees, um, where I would have been able to just throw into ChatGPT a question like, uh, as we did in the Nature paper, actually, uh, give us 10 ways in which uh, there is an evidence base for cutting crime rates. And it spattered out. Now, some of those examples were really obvious and I would have been able to come up with them myself. Some of them were wrong. And some of them are things that I didn't think of that were really valuable. Um, and that's just one example of the many ways in which, as a tool, it can speed up some aspects of a process that has been slow for 40 years. So what I think we'll probably find is that these kinds of tools will speed up a lot of that sort of uh, the, the kind of the donkey work component of science advice to enable people like me back in the day to spend more time face to face, more time crafting bespoke briefs for individuals, more time making sure that the evidence synthesis make the exact need of the policy questions that were being asked rather than just scrambling for information the entire time. Government policy, science research and machine authors next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to Velocity of Content wherever you go for podcasts and don't miss an episode of the show. The CCC podcast is also available on the CCC YouTube channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.